Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Before we get started, one of the reasons a lot of people listen is because people are very interested in today's economy in making side income, having a side hustle. I think this is critical in today's world. I spent five years doing research on 177 potential side hustles. I interviewed everyone involved so you can get a step-by-step actionable way to start pursuing any of these side hustles or even a way to think about them. I want you to get this free book, claim your free copy of the Side Hustle Bible today. All you have to do is go to www.jamesfreebooks.com. That's www.jamesfreebooks.com. Each method, I think, has the potential to turn into a huge business or a side business, whatever you want. You could start multiple side businesses. Go to jamesfreebooks.com, see how others have done it, see the step-by-step guides that they provide. That's www.jamesfreebooks.com. Get your free copy. Now here's the show. Enjoy. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I think that in a complicated world, you have to have a little bit of knowledge about a whole bunch of things, or you'll just get lost in the complexity. You know, for example, I started noticing when I was debating people on Twitter that some people would have good points. And then I'd click on their profile and it would say economist or lawyer. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's why it's a good point. And then uh, somebody would say something that was just so, uh, so counter to logic and good thinking. And I'd say, all right, let's click on that profile. Artist, musician. <laughs> and it was so consistent that I started thinking there must be something about going back to the talent stack. That some people are experienced across fields or that they were lucky enough to spend their time in a field that taught you how to think. If you learn economics, you come away with more than just economic techniques. They teach you how to think, how to think about money in the future is worth less, how to think about a sunk cost should not affect your future decisions, um, and how to compare things uh, rationally. So that's just one of the fields. But you could very quickly bring somebody up to speed with the big ideas from each field. So just a little bit of exposure to how a psychologist would think, an economist, a historian, an entrepreneur can take people a long way. So, so yes. And how do you zoom out enough? Like a lot of this is about self-awareness, right? So how do you zoom out enough to, um, or build that self-awareness or practice that self-awareness so you can kind of come to a different conclusion like you just did. 
one of my favorite sponsors because I drink this coffee every single day. It is it is amazing. It is. I'll, I'll, let's just start and say who it is. It's Four Sigmatic. It's mushroom coffee. It doesn't give me that anxiety that like normal coffee does after a few hours. All you do is grab a packet, which is sort of the size of a tea bag, open it up, sprinkle the powder into your coffee, mix and drink. You get this calm focus. I always take this about an hour before I start writing. Here's my morning routine. I'll take the mushroom coffee, I'll read for about an hour, and then I start writing. And of course, I have a special offer for you guys. Receive 15% off your Four Sigmatic order. Just go to foursigmatic.com slash altature or enter code altature at checkout. That is Four Sigmatic, F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com slash altature to receive 15% off your order. Running a small business is not easy, but banking should be. That's why Axos Bank, A-X-O-S Bank, offers convenient 100% online business banking with zero maintenance fees and no minimum balance requirements on their basic business checking. They are so confident that you'll love it, they'll give you $50 free to try their basic business checking account. Just use promo code JAMES on your application. Visit axosbank.com slash James to get started. That's Axos, A-X-O-S, bank.com slash James. So I've got Scott Adams here. I forget if this is the third or fourth time you've been on. I was trying to remember two, but let's go, let's say three. I think it's three because the first time was after how to win how to fail and win big. What's the, how to fail almost everything and yeah, still win big. Yeah, which was which was a great book. It's where you talk about. Um, I think that's where you start talking about the talent stack and all these right. all these ideas that really stayed in my life uh, ever since. And then the second book, Win Bigly, which on the surface seems to be about how you know the specific techniques Trump used to win the twenty sixteen election, but I actually read and reread that book because it's so great about just persuasion in just life in general and how, what you can do or say to make life just a little bit easier if you're a little more persuasive. Guys, anything that an author likes to hear better than I reread your book? Like you, <laughs> but, you don't hear that a lot. No, I just, I just reread it about two or three months ago because again, I, I was thinking about persuasion and it's just, it's just great advice in there. I try to write uh, the two you mentioned and then the new and loser thing. They're written as, you know, you enjoy it when you read it, but you're supposed to go back. You know, you're supposed to go back and look at a page and check a section and, you know, yeah. they're designed that way. I like the, um, the for instance, well, okay, we're going to, mainly we're going to be talking about Loser Think, your latest book, How Untrained Brains Are Ruining America. But also I want to mention uh, the obvious thing, which is that you've, you're the creator of Dilbert. Dilbert's been running since what, 1988, 89? 89, yeah. So, what is that, 30 years? Well, I can't even remember. <laughs> I can't add anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's 30 years. I can't believe anything I've done for 30 years. It just seems like an impossible number. I mean, that, like, probably when you were back then, you weren't aware that 30 years later, this would be the only thing you've done for that long in your entire life. Like, wow. you were, how, how old were you when you started, Delbert? Um, early 30s, 32-ish when right. I started working. So you weren't like fully, like mentally aware that you were human until you were like five or six. <laughs> so you've been doing Dilbert longer than you've been like 
you know, jacked into the matrix. <laughs> uh, the the other thing similar to that I've been thinking is that I think I've achieved the le- the point where I've been famous for more of my life than I haven't been famous. I think I think it's at the crossover point now. And 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 what's what's just just because you brought it up, what's that like? What does that mean? Like when you when you show up anywhere and you say, "Oh, this is kind of everyone's going to say, "Oh, I love Dilbert. Your your cartoon about this was hanging up on my cubicle for eight years." And then the first question I would wonder is, "Why were you in a cubicle for eight years, miserable?" But well, what's it like? Uh, I'll tell you the the main change is that every now and then I'll be in a situation where some I've I've not been introduced, so I'm just you know like everybody else, I'm just an anonymous person, and I get to experience how you get treated when you're not famous. And then I get to compare, and it's not as good. It's really not as good. Being not famous. Yeah, when you're a little bit well-known. And I, I, I shouldn't say famous. I'm, I'm sort of like semi-famous, you know, if you know cartoons, you know who I am. But uh, people give you the benefit of a doubt. Uh, when, when I was really at the top of my Dilbert fame, I would make some terrible mistake, you know, I'd miss a meeting or something. And people would apologize to me, and I'd be like, no, I just forgot the meeting. There's nobody else to blame here. And somebody would say, well, I should have reminded you. I'm like, what is this? What's going on? What, why am I not being treated like everybody else in the world? You know, you mess up, it's, it's on you. But uh, yeah, I get, I get used to it. And so now 30 years later, do you get upset if people don't apologize <laughs> to you when you're, when you're late? No, I never, I, I never ask for apologies. I, I, philosophically, I don't need them. I accept them when they're offered, but I don't need them. And and we'll, we'll I'm going to skip around in loser think, and we'll describe what, what loser the word loser think means and why you use that word. But you, you do talk a little bit. I don't even think you refer to it this way. But you talk, do talk a little bit about the halo effect of fame, which is that if someone's famous, people are more likely to listen to all of their opinions. Like they might be famous at being an actor or an actress, but suddenly people will listen to their opinion on quantum mechanics or whatever. And I'm making a leap, but you describe in the book, uh, Seth MacFarlane, who's a genius in every other respect. You, you, you do a really good job of outlining all of his accomplishments and deferring to him at what he's great at. But then you question his understanding of how to understand, you know, scientific arguments on climate change. And so you've probably experienced this firsthand. And I think you go the other way to say, I'm not an expert on this, but here's how I look at it. Yeah, I try to only present things that either have an obvious source or it's clear when you explain it. You know, the, the type of thing, for example, you mentioned the, the talent stack idea. The first time you hear the idea that instead of being the best in the world at one thing, that you could be valuable by combining things intelligently, you don't really need to argue that. It's just so obviously true, but you just haven't thought of it that way. So that's usually my domain, is things you haven't quite thought of in that way. You don't know how many times... I, I was just on this other... When you came in here, another podcaster was leaving. I was just on his show. I quoted you and the talent stack on that show because, you know, your your quote in I, I, that, that, that book on, um, you know, how to fail and then win... Uh, and where you talk about the talent stack, you say, uh, I'm probably not the greatest drawer in the world, but I'm pretty good. I'm probably not the greatest, I think you say greatest businessman in the world, but I'm pretty good. And I'm probably not the greatest, um, I'm probably not the funniest person in the world, but I'm pretty funny. And, but at the intersection, you know, I'm, 
I don't know if you say I'm great, but the, the outcome is you've created Dilbert, the, one of the most popular syndicated cartoons ever. Yeah, I don't say great, I say rare. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I have a combination of talents that other people could have put together, but I did. What other, and, and you, and Win Bigley, you talk about Trump's talent stack uh, as an example of how he was able to use, you know, make, you know, he was able to be great at the intersection of his talent stack and he used that to, to catapult above the other 19 candidates running for the Republican nomination. But I, I think this is a common thing in life that people should, people always say focus, 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 but it's not that it's really breath. And then how good you are at navigating that intersection. Yeah, it probably has something to do with the world getting more complicated. You know, I, I think that in a complicated world, you have to have a little bit of knowledge about a whole bunch of things or you'll just get lost in the complexity. You know, for, for example, putting, putting on a podcast, you probably have a general knowledge of everything from the technology to the lighting just by being around it, et cetera. And uh, these are just really good stackable skills. Of course, you also have a good crew, so they, they can do a lot of that for you. But uh, Wait, I don't know if I know anything about the equipment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bad example. <laughs> but, but anyway, you, you, even doing this, you're, you're putting together a whole bunch of different minor skills to create what we're doing right now. Yeah, no, it's true. I think, um, well, and you know, and you also, even with Dilbert, there's another aspect, which is, which we, we all kind of uncovered when you started writing about it, but, uh, persuasion, you're, you know, you studied as a hypnotist, you used those techniques to try to understand what was going on in the 2016 presidential election. You were making predictions that seemed so outlandish that nobody believed them. You probably got a lot of hostility from it, and yet they all ended up being true. And and a lot of it was from you observing the kind of persuasion skills of all the candidates and what they were doing and how they were manipulating each other and the audience. And it was it was very po powerful and unique analysis. Yeah, usually it's hard to predict, you know, the future. Obviously, <laughs> and everybody tries. Um, but in this case, what it looked to me like was somebody was bringing a you know machine gun to a knife fight. And so it didn't look like there was any other way it could go. I mean, it was a lot closer than I thought it would be. I actually thought it would be a blowout. Um, so I guess I was wrong in the in the scale, but at least I got the, the answer well, right. Before we get into loser thing, what do you think about 2020? I know everyone probably asked you that. I have to ask yeah. it. Um, I'm going to go with the, the people who say the economy is going to rule. Now, of course, with Trump, every rule is broken, right? So everything they used to predict probably doesn't. But he still has a, an amazing set of skills, which he's improved. He, he's way better at public speaking, way better at um, the, the whole presidenting business. And he's got some solid accomplishments to run, run against. Uh, Mike Cernovich said this the other day, and I, I've been laughing about it for a week, that when he talks to people about who's going to win, he has to remind them that the president's going to be running against an actual specific person. Because <laughs> right now everybody has the advantage of saying, well, a great candidate against Trump, I'll take the great candidate every time. But once it's that real specific individual, he's going to annihilate whoever that is. And it's just, it's, uh, I feel sorry for them, frankly. Yeah. And so it seems like, you know, and again, this is, you always couch things in terms of being, you know, this is a politically neutral analysis, but it's interesting to see what strategies come into play. Like even in terms of should they do impeachment or not? The Democrats have to think strategically how this is going to be either used for them or used against them. And it's at this point, 
I think everything that's done is better viewed in the in in terms of this is a game rather than in terms of this is history being made. <laughs> like it's not that it's it's kind of at the importance level of a game rather than people doing things seriously for serious reasons. You know, I've been thinking about this and I was thinking of writing it, but I haven't that we've really gamified politics and you people talk about Trump turning it into a reality TV show. At first that seemed like, well, that's you know just a colorful way to describe it and maybe it's a little bit insulting. But the more you watch, you realize that he is bringing all of those skills to it and he understands what I call the show, meaning that he knows he has to put on a show because that's part of his persuasion. That's how he gets attention. That's how... That's how we know China is not the great place that we thought it was before he started hammering on him because he gets attention. So Trump's ability to understand it as uh, a reality show that he can host and put on and produce, and then it can, if you know, if everything goes right, it produces opinions that are favorable to him. So it's a brilliant way to go. Why do you think? And this this is going to start to veer now and say we're into loser thing. You know what? Let's let's talk about loser thing for a second. So. Loser think is a great word because it reminds me of your idea of the linguistic kill shot. Like you make up a word that hasn't been used before and then that, and you sort of own it. You sort of stand out in the crowd and loser think I had never heard that word before. You made it up for this book, but you use it throughout. It's a real word. You use it throughout the book to mean something real, which is not just, not just that someone, it, it's sort of a way of distancing yourself distancing a person from who they are with what they are doing. So instead of saying you're stupid, you could say to someone, oh, you're engaging in loser think. Here's why. And and I thought that was a good, ingenious, you're always trying to say very extreme things without um, insulting anyone. And so loser think becomes a tool for you to explain these be loserly behaviors or even stupid behaviors without actually insulting any of the people who are engaging in those behaviors. Yeah, it, it moves the insult to the technique. So it's the technique that is the losing technique. And mockery is very powerful. You know, you're, you're essentially mocking the person before the technique. You're not saying there's something wrong with the person fundamentally. Um, so giving it a provocative name is part of the persuasion. Uh, nobody wants to be engaged in loser think before you even tell them what it is. You don't even have to define it. You say, would you like to do some loser think? Well, no, thank you. I would rather not. Right. Like if you had called the book, are you stupid? Then <laughs> some, some people are going to read the book and maybe be insulted. <laughs> but if, if you say, if you call the book loser think, Everyone's going to be thinking, yeah, my cousin do, does this. Yeah. I'm going to tell them. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that was part of my secret with uh, Dilbert is I would uh, make fun of people's bosses. And then people would say, well, don't bosses hate you? And I'd say, no, they think I'm talking about their boss. Everybody's pretty sure I'm talking about some other person. So that's that's how I get away with it. And with Dilbert, too, I remember like they don't have – none of the characters have eyeballs, right? Because right. <laughs> you're, you're kind of making – you're only kind of – it's sort of like – to 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 paraphrase a Silicon Valley cliche, you're you're creating minimally viable people <laughs> so that we all can relate to these characters in some way or other. Yeah, the, that's why Dilbert doesn't have a last name. You don't know the name of his company. You don't know what he makes. Uh, you, you don't know a lot of stuff about him. And that's exactly like you said. It lets the reader uh, fill the character with their own their own thoughts. Sort of like Charlie Brown, actually, with um, parents. Like every kid could relate to. The parent that's going, wah, 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 wah. <laughs> so, oh, it sounds like my parents. <laughs> yeah. So. 
Yeah, that that's a good example of filling in the blanks. Yes. So, so uh, am I am I correct in how you define loser? Think is is do you want to define it further? I'll, I'll say also, uh, you you kind of go throughout the book. You give example after example after example, and how to combat loser think in real practical ways that are helpful. Whether you're an employee or having an argument or dealing with family or friends, but but what, what seems like really happening is you're looking at cognitive biases and seeing if there's ways to kind of combat when, when other people have fallen prey to a, a, a cognitive bias, which is, which is like a shortcut in mental thinking. Yeah, the, just adding a little context, your, your description of loser think was, was excellent. I'll just a little, little more context. I started noticing when I was debating people on Twitter that some people would have good points and then I'd click on their profile and it would say economist or lawyer. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's why it's a good point. And then uh, somebody would say something that was just so, uh, so counter to logic and good thinking. And I'd say, all right, let's click on that profile, artist, musician. <laughs> and it was so consistent that I started thinking there must be something about going back to the talent stack that, that some people are experienced across fields or that they were lucky enough to spend their time in a field that taught you how to think. If you learn economics, you come away with more than just economic techniques. They teach you how to think, how to, how to, how to think about money in the future is worth less, how to think about a sunk cost should not affect your future decisions, um, and how to compare things uh, rationally. So that's just one of the fields. In that one, I have some experience. But you could very quickly bring somebody up to speed with the big ideas from each field because really just hearing them once is all you need. So if you'd never heard of what a sunk cost is, and I said, well, let me explain. It's money you've already spent. You can't get it back. It should not, uh, it should not influence your next decision. But for psychological reasons, it sometimes does. Try to put the psychology aside. Now, once you've heard that, you don't need to read a book, right? I mean, that's the whole explanation is right there. Likewise, if you'd never heard of science, let's say science just didn't exist, would your common sense tell you that you need a control experiment to compare whatever you're looking at? Probably not, because it took however many, you know, hundreds of years of humanity for, was it Isaac Newton, who fi finally said, hey, maybe we should have a little rigor in this science thing. So just a little bit of exposure to how a psychologist would think, an economist, a historian, an entrepreneur can take people a long way. You know, and it's interesting because I would say in general, the scientific method you can call into question, unless it's like a very clearly laid out experiment, statistically, there's so many ways to manipulate the outcome or the interpretation of the outcome. You have to be really careful when reading a scientific paper how the scientific method was used. There's no real easy way to use the scientific method unless it's an easy problem. Yeah, and then on top of that, you have to layer that science is a process and you're, you're crawling toward the truth and you're never completely sure if you've got some more crawling to do. Um, so, you know, people need to understand that um, something like half of all those studies that are published turned out to be rubbish in the long run. Um, so that's a good, good filter to keep. It's like, ah, it's a new study it's about 50% likely to be wrong and certain areas may be higher. So th that's a good thing to keep in mind. Yeah. And you, um, you know, you're constantly, I, I don't, this is almost like sport for you. You like going on Twitter and 
arguing with people and and exploring all of these different uh, types of loser think. But uh, you know, I almost wonder. I almost wonder if that's an example of loser think that you're engaging in. Because why do you go on Twitter to argue with all these people so much? Well, a uh, number of reasons. Number one is part of the show. So part of what makes people want to follow me, and they, they say this explicitly, so I'm not guessing, they say that they like to go look at my comments and how I'm wrestling with the other people because they're picking up technique. Uh, yeah. So part of it is demonstrating technique. Part of it is A-B testing because I'm seeing what works, You know what, what gets you off your position, what just makes you matter. I'm learning as I go. But uh, you know, I think you were, you were sort of onto it there, that there's, I probably wouldn't put as much energy into it if I didn't kind of like it, so I'm I'm sort of addicted to it. Yeah, it could be fun. I remember I, I remember. Normally, I don't engage, but I I made a po uh, you, this book reminded me very much of a post I made about a month or so ago. Jessica Beale had made some comments about or California states. This was the headline I saw: California state senators consulted Jessica Beale before major bill. So I didn't even know what the bill was about. And so I just wrote a post making fun of this headline. Like, why did they call each other in the morning and said, did you call Jessica Biel? No, did you? But, <laughs> but then I wrote the post and everybody started talking about vaccines. So I looked at what the bill was and it's like, oh, it's a, uh, she was kind of on the anti-vaccine side or she was on the anti-vaccine side. And then everybody, it became thousands of comments on this thread. I had never had so many yeah. comments on a thread before. And I started responding and then friends of mine would call me and say, James, what are you doing? Like, get back out of this. Like, <laughs> it's insane what's happening. But, but you know, again, there was this idea that, you know, somehow Jessica Biel, the actress, is also apparently an anti-vaccine biologist or something, which is ludicrous. And, <laughs> but then I noticed some things, which, which in all of them kind of occurred in this book, is that all of these, I wish I had read this book beforehand because all the techniques you talk about should have been used. Like people would just say the most insane things about vaccines. And then they would switch topics once you quote unquote, prove them wrong. Or right. they would say word for word, some of the things that you were saying, they would say here, they would say, but I didn't have the tools right. to battle them. And, um, I even had a guest on very famous guest who also happens to be anti-vaccine. I didn't want to go down that route. He went down that route and I knew I couldn't say anything because he would just have his list would be so much bigger than mine because he had been involved in this for 25 years or whatever. Right. So, but you gave a technique towards the end, which is um, something like ha ask them what they think is true that they also think you don't think is true. Right. And I thought that was a very powerful technique. So I call that the magic question because what when I debate online, people will recast my opinion as something stupid and then they'll argue the stupid thing that they just hallucinated. And you can't stop people from doing that. If you say, no, that's not my opinion, they'll simply invent a new one and then attack it and, you know, forever. So it's so kind what's of an example? Uh, well, okay, let me give you uh, a perfect example. It comes recently, uh, actress uh, Alyssa Milano did a list of nine reasons that the president should be impeached. And I call that laundry list persuasion. And in the laundry list uh, case, uh, the magic question is slightly different, we'll get to that. In the laundry list case, um, if you try to debate every point, 
you'll get to the ninth one and say, okay, now I've debunked all nine things. Are we done? People will say, all right. And they'll just start back in on the first one as if you had never discussed it. And then they'll repeat that forever. So instead, I just say, all right, how about you give me your strongest, most bulletproof point? And can we agree that after I debunk that, you'll rethink the ones that are less, less good than the one I debunked? Now, the point of that is to go after their confidence, not after the, the whack-a-mole that you can never accomplish. So, so that's the trick. Now, the, the magic question is where you're, you're not making any progress. People are making up opinions and assigning to you. And uh, you say, tell me something that you believe that you think I don't believe on this topic. And, and they'll go one thing after another. They'll say, well, you believe that if we, we build a, a wall on the border, that there will be no drugs coming across the border. And then I'd say, no, I don't believe that. Or they'd say, um, you believe that uh, if we add some more gun control, criminals will not get guns. And then I'll say, no, I don't believe that. And you can actually exhaust people uh, w without them ever finding any place that you disagree. What if they stop in the middle and say, well, what do you believe then? You clearly disagree with me. What do you believe? Well, usually you've stated it. And you say, it's right here. It's in my tweet. It's not that long to read. You can reread it. And uh, if there's anything you want clarification on, I can do. But uh, yeah, the, the people who are recasting your argument as a ridiculous one to argue against, you can't go directly at it because it's an imaginary argument. You've got to bring them back to tell me anything you really disagree with. And, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the time, these people who are like I, I saw this particularly in the anti-vax thing, but it, 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 it's across many domains, you know, Trump and deep state and, and a hundred other topics, climate change, a hundred other topics, uh, is that when you get them every way you can in the whack-a-mole, they switch to a completely different conspiracy. <laughs> right. And so it seems like the, and I've, I've, talked about this on this podcast before, but it seems like the one thing everybody has in common, if they believe in one massive conspiracy is that they believe in basically all of them. And there's no, because they, they've lost some trust with major institutions in their lives at some point, And there's nothing you can do. Uh, I'm, I've come to the opinion that everybody believes in conspiracy theories, but we only think that ours are real and the other people's are conspiracy theories. <laughs> uh, that, that's sort of my two movies on one screen. That the, the old way of looking at the world was that somebody was right, or maybe they were both wrong, but, but somebody's right and somebody's wrong. In my view of the world, we're both creating an artificial world that is so different. Like whatever's happening in my brain is probably just fundamentally different from whatever's happening in yours. We, we have some sense that we're here doing you know, this podcast, but otherwise your view of the world is probably so insanely different than mine, I wouldn't even recognize it if I saw it. So once you realize that people are walking around with completely different you know, mental images of the world, um, you can deal with it more realistically. Yeah, and then I guess part of the aspect of loser think is that given that we're all walking around with these different visions of the world and we're all trying to express these visions to other people, that's how we become a society and a community, that sometimes in those communications, loser think is involved, which, which makes your opinion less worthwhile in some way or less valid or less there's less reason to act on it because you're engaging in loser think. Yeah, specifically, there's a, a gap in the way you think that may have been filled in if you'd had some experience across fields. Uh, it, it's better probably to give some examples. Some examples? Um, 
I love the people who will take a complicated thing and boil it down to one variable. Those people should always be ignored. Uh, the most famous one, of course, is Hillary Clinton. You know, what's what's the reason she lost? There's not the reason. There are thousands of variables that had to go exactly the way they went to get exactly the outcome that you got. So anybody who says, well, I've got the one reason for this or the one problem with that, usually they're, they're lost and loser think. Things tend to be more complicated. And in that example, uh, again, it's this, it's this idea. I think your, your general philosophy through this is that every, everybody has these cognitive biases that they're going to use for better or for worse, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, that allows them to take shortcuts in thinking. So if someone's explaining to someone else, why did Hillary lose? It's easier to say, well, this seems to be the main factor. That's my opinion. And then, you know, as opposed to listing a thousand factors, it's much more complicated to say, here's a shortcut, how I think about it. And, and, and you mentioned in, in when bigly, you mentioned how, um, you know, once she started saying as a slogan, I'm with her versus make America great again. These were very, these were two very powerful persuasive messages, just one was much more powerful than the other. Wait, one was personal. You know, I'm with her, had something to do with her gender. It was just small ball, but make America great again. Who could argue with a great America? But, but so, so I, so I, when I, when I read that, I kind of agree. That probably was the primary reason she lost. And I agree, and again, I agree. It's of course, many, many factors. People have very complicated opinions in, in politics, but I feel like saying um, it's too complex to ever have an opinion is is also a good shortcut to not really uh, committing to an opinion. Well, most of the shortcut opinions tend to be persuasion. Hmm. So somebody's got a, a point they need to make, so they'll say, uh, oh, the reason she lost is because of um, uh, gender discrimination. But that's because that's the message they they want to want to send. So the the one variable answers tend to be persuasion based, pundit based, and not reality based. And you know, uh, when you go on a news show, they kind of want you to be to be a professional pundit, which is which is no one would claim that that's their job, but many people have that job. To be a professional pundit, you have to have the one variable answer. You have to get really good at the one variable answer. Like I should be able to throw any topic at you, Brexit, and you'll have a one variable answer because that's TV friendly. So you got you only have 15 right. to 20 seconds to state your opinion and then maybe another 30 to argue it after someone argues against it. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. If you're sitting at your desk and you can't focus, your head is foggy, you're not motivated, then I highly recommend you do what I do, try Four Sigmatic. It's so good. We even have it right here in the podcast studio to make anytime we want it. Here's how I take it. First off, I bought like thousands of the packets, which are travel size. I love bringing them around when I travel. Then I add it to water and within minutes, I become more focused and centered. And if you need even more proof of how great this is, here's a fun fact. Lion's mane mushrooms have been long used by Buddhist monks to help with focus during meditation. If you know anything about meditation and coffee, the two do not go together. Do not drink regular coffee before meditation unless it's lion's mane mushroom coffee. Four Sigmatic's mushroom coffee is made with 100% organic Arabica coffee beans. It has zero sugar, zero carbs, zero calories. It's organic, vegan, paleo, sugar-free, dairy-free, 
and it has half the caffeine of regular coffee. Plus, the flavor is great. It's kind of earthy, which I like personally. And so I worked out a special deal for the James Altucher Show listeners. Receive 15%, one five, 15% off your Four Sigmatic order. Just go to foursigmatic.com slash Altucher or enter code Altucher at checkout. That is F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash Altucher to receive 15% off your order. Bayer knows that behind every breakthrough are people who dared to move the world forward. It's human ingenuity that drives progress. Time and time again, we keep doing the things that couldn't be done. The sky was the limit until we walked on the moon. It once took weeks to communicate before it took a fraction of a second. So what's next? Bayer is working with farmers to shape the future of agriculture. Farms where all life grows together, tools that help plants and farmers use less water, and crops that can help raise communities out of poverty. What we can achieve is simply an extension of what we can imagine. We've been proving it for thousands of years. That's why Bayer is driven to find even better answers to today's best solutions. When we're brave enough to challenge what hasn't been done, we discover the science behind what's yet to come. That's science for a better life. People don't realize that the business model of the press has changed. And you know the, the key moment was when they could measure exactly who's clicking what. Because from that point on, they had to follow the, the action. They had to follow the energy. So if you have a public company, you've got to serve up things that get a lot of clicks. So that means that setting, setting people's hair on fire was more important than just objectively reporting the news. And I think there are a lot of people walking around in sort of a zombie fog not realizing that the news isn't the news anymore. Right. They get the big stuff right. You know, if there's a hurricane, they get that right. Um, but one of the things I recommend is that not only do you sample, you know, the left and the right news, because you're going to be lost if you've only seen one side. doesn't matter which side. They, they say conservatives are a little bit better at sampling the other side than vice versa, but you should sample like crazy. And then here's a, a rule from Loser Think. Um, don't treat it as a fact unless it's reported by both the left and the right, the political left and right. Uh, and when they do, it's almost certainly a fact, or right. at least it's reliable. Right, like you say, if, if both Fox and NBC are saying there's going to be a hurricane, probably there'll be a hurricane. Right. Or at least that's what the evidence is really showing. But if, if one side says we just killed uh, an austere religious leader and the other side says we killed a terrorist, there's some loser thing happening in there. Well... Uh, th that one would be more of a, an objective fact that this person got killed and we like to label people differently. But uh, l let's say a better example would be, um, let's say, Uranium One. So if you watched Fox News, they were at least a few years ago, they don't do it anymore, but they would be talking about how Hillary Clinton was behind this Uranium One thing and it's very, very bad. But you'd go over to CNN and they'd be like, no, nah, there's nothing here. It was approved. Everybody looked at it. Ordinary business. That's a perfect example where you could predict, because it was only on one news source, that it would never go to whatever conclusion it would go to if it were true. Yeah. So, so, I. But here, here's here's like, because I've worked in newsrooms and I've seen, and you probably have too. I've seen kind of how the sausage is made, as you've referred to in in loser things. I think you say there's two things you don't want to see is uh, how news is made and how sausage is made, and. Uh, uh, 
I've seen how the news is made. And I never read news. I haven't picked up a newspaper or looked at an online site unless someone specifically said you have to read it since about 2010. And just because it's only entertainment. If something's really important enough for me to know, I'm going to know it. Like people are going to people are going to be talking about it. Right. Otherwise, it's just going to disappear in a day or so and I'll be glad I read your book instead of reading, I don't know, some newspaper. Yeah, by the time you read a book, it's had time to turn into fact. Uh, I also recommend and loser think that you know, you you wait until the fog of war clears, not just if there are bullets flying, but just any new complicated story. You know, you come back next week and it, everything's different. The context has been added. You found out the the players, the names were wrong, and all kinds of stuff. So I always say, just just wait. Fog of war will clear up. The first week doesn't even count. But you do have a lot of first. You have a lot of techniques for recognizing loser think, and then a lot of techniques for dealing with it. And what what have you used like in your in your personal life? You know, because the thing I'm getting at is. So Daniel Kahneman, who developed this theory of cognitive biases, again, which aren't bad things, they're kind of help humans take shortcuts in their thinking so they don't expend a lot of time thinking about useless things. We have all these shortcuts that we've evolved with. So there's a good side to it. The bad side is we could end up thinking things that are horribly mistaken. Um, and, and Daniel Kahneman's theory is that you can't avoid cognitive biases. Right. And you're sort of saying here that you could take a step outside of yourself and say, oh, I'm engaging in loser think, or I'm about to engage with someone who's engaging in loser think. And loser think sums up a, a variety of cognitive biases. Yeah, well, one of the best things you can do is start labeling other people for their loser think, because then it's easier to recognize it when you do it. For example, one, one of the most common things people will do in the pundit world is imagine that they know what some stranger is thinking. They know their inner thoughts. Oh, sure, it looks like you did this for innocent reasons, but I know your real thought is for power and money and you've got some something to gain. We're really bad at reading people's thoughts. As evidence that we're bad at reading people's thoughts, I give you every relationship you've ever been in. <laughs> and just think about it. The people who know you best can't even tell if you're in a good mood or a bad mood sometimes. I mean, my girlfriend Christina will say, gosh, why are you in such a bad mood? And I'll be sitting there thinking, I'm actually in a terrific mood. What am I doing with my face? So we are terrible mind readers. And just calling it out when you see other people do it, and it's just so pervasive that maybe you haven't even noticed. It's just the most common way people talk about uh, the world and politics is based on their assumption of somebody's inner thoughts. So uh, it, it's good to help yourself not do it because you're reminded by the fact that you keep telling other people not to do it. So that's a good technique. Do you ever find a good technique when, let's say you're engaging in one of these discussions where someone is engaging in loser think, uh, which, which maybe we could talk about more spe specific types of loser think, but do you ever find it useful to label it like to, to kind of bring them up and not have a technique to respond to what they're saying, but to say, Hey, just the way you're presenting this might not be the smartest way to present it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, part of the use of the book I recommend is that you can actually take a, a picture of a page if there's somebody who's making one of these cognitive errors or, or arguing errors, and you can just send it to them because maybe I said it better than you could say it in a tweet, plus you know, more words because it's a picture of a page. 
Um, and there is power in labeling things. So simply calling it loser think if that becomes catchy, and so far it looks like it is catchy, um, it, it gives you something that's more powerful than just conceptually trying to explain a new thing for the first time. My perfect example of this is um, some years ago, Elon Musk put out a memo telling his company uh, how to behave. And one of the rules on his list was don't do any policies that would make it into a Dilbert comic. Now, the beauty of that is that pretty much everybody who's familiar with Dilbert comics knows what he means, even though there could be a million examples. But they, they kind of all know, oh yeah, if, if I saw this, that would be something that would be in a Dilbert comic. So because the word Dilbert existed in a common language way, uh, Musk could refer to it with just Dilbert, and you knew exactly what he meant. So the loser thing tries to do that, not just with the larger label loser think, but I've got smaller labels about you know word thinking and about uh, mind reading, et cetera. And once those become part of the vocabulary, it's going to be much easier to dissect the bubbles that people are uh, trapped in. I, I like how you described uh, Alyssa Milano's list of laundry list of nine things about impeachment as a persuasion technique. And you know your last book was so much about persuasion, it seems this book is a little bit how to avoid the effects of persuasion and respond to it. So I guess the laundry list of persuasion is if you have lots of reasons for something, then it must be true. So the thing you should um, say to yourself, <clears throat> since you see people giving you laundry lists that you don't agree with, if you yourself have just created a laundry list, ask yourself, <clears throat> did you not have one good reason? Because who gives nine reasons <clears throat> when one will get it done? You know, it's like, well, you know, uh, uh, Hitler murdered a lot of people and there was the Holocaust, but, you know, he also cheated on his taxes. Well, you don't really need the second reason for a lot of things. So that, that should be a clue. Now, I'm not going to say categorically that there aren't sometimes nine reasons that all just fit perfectly because yeah, ca those cases exist. But in the arguing world where you're just trying to make a case, that's usually a big tell that you don't have one solid reason. What about when, and, and this is one I see a lot, when people switch topics, you know, how do, do you, do you label and say you just switch the topic or, you know, at some point I've noticed you do give up the whack-a-mole, like you kind of give your thing and then you back out, but do you actually do that or are you so engaged you? So uh, the, the topic switchers, um, Depends how much they're switching. If if they're if they're switching an attack on the same topic, that's when you go to the uh, name one thing that you believe is true uh. that I don't because you have to get them out of that. Um, by the way, when I have um, di differences of agreement or disagreements with economists, <clears throat> quite often it's fairly predictable. You can almost instantly track it down to the difference in assumptions because economists are trained to think that way. So, well, your prediction's different than mine. What are you assuming is true? And then you can track it back to the, oh, you made that assumption, I made this assumption, where's your source? And you can really kind of get down to it. But the the normal public, you know, they're not trained economists, they're not used to, you know, um, tracking an argument back to its root to find out where's the, the real source of difference in assumption. Yeah, like you talk about, for instance, people who are arguing pro-life versus pro-choice, and that's the type of argument that will go on forever, because they obviously start off with very different assumptions. Well, they, they try to win with a definition. So that's what I call word thinking, where you try to win a debate 
with your your preferred definition of a word. So in the um, in the abortion question, the people who are you know against it um, will say, well, life you know begins at inception, and if you're for abortion, you'll say, nah, you know, it's just a it's just a fetus. But in both cases, you're talking about exactly the same thing. <clears throat> Nobody disagrees with what it is, what qualities a fetus has, what it, what it could become. Everything about it is the same, but because people have put two different words on it, it's life or it's not life, they declare victory and they walk away. But no actual debate has happened. Right. There, it's just the illusion of a debate. I mean, can you reframe the debate in terms of ranking the importance of different concepts? So, for instance... There's also, there's two different concepts there. One is you, you could truly believe, let, let's take an extreme. You could truly believe that the fetus at any moment is an alive human being. And so abortions murder, but you could also believe that a woman has a hundred percent rights over her body until the fetus is born. So you, you know, you're just, you're reframing the debate as opposed to whether the baby, the fetus is alive or not. So in your case, you're just saying what's more important that the woman gets to choose versus the life of whatever, right. whatever you want to call this this entity. Right. You're saying you're saying in that extreme case, murder's fine, but uh, the right of the woman in the, at this in this period yeah. of her life is more important. Yeah. You you'd have to be super rational to make that argument. That's why you see it so rarely, because the the problem is um, you have to accept some bad stuff, whichever way you go with that. So you either have to say, yes, I'm okay with grievous harm to women who could have chosen to avoid it, or yes, I'm okay with ending the life or non-life or whatever you want to call of these, these entities, which much of the world would say is alive and is a baby. So the trouble with being rational is that you make, a, you make yourself a target because whichever rational way you went on that, uh, you just created a, just a big wound that isn't going to heal because <laughs> you've got to explain why you're so mean to babies or you're so mean to adult women. There's, you know, the, our culture doesn't let you get away with that nuance. The way, the way I approach the abortion question is that um, I like, when you, have a, when you have an issue that's so um, dividing the country, and there is no way that you're going to get one team to agree with the other. I think we could agree. It's just not going to go that way. You have to default to what's the best thing you can do when you know you can't get agreement. In my opinion, the best thing you can do is make the process, the system, or the laws the most credible they could be, even if people disagree with them. Because people will go along with things that they don't like as long as it got there in a credible way. So, for example, um, if there's an election and you don't like the outcome, you don't necessarily form a revolution because it was by a vote. You're like, okay, the, at least the process was credible. So with abortion, um, my opinion is that the most credible process is the one that women as a majority favor and that male voices in the conversation are anti-productive, useless, distraction. Um, I don't think women are going to necessarily come to a different decision than they would if men and women made the same decision. And by the way, I'm not suggesting any other man make this decision. I'm just saying my personal, my personal persuasive uh, philosophy is that um, even if I thought I was right and wanted to push my view, it would be a less credible outcome if I were part of it. Because I'm a man, I don't have as much skin in the game, I don't have the same appreciation 
I would rather women as a whole be happy with whatever it is, whichever way it goes, and then I'm on board. You, you tell me what works for you, I will support that by the majority. It's interesting about the skin in the game because let's take the issue of uh, climate change, for instance. That's always one of these predictions where it's always put off another 10 years. So in 1989 or 1972, we only have 10 years left. In 1989, we only have 10 years left. It's, it's always kick the can down the road. I'm not saying anything one thing or the other about climate change because behavior could still be pro-environment. Like people shouldn't like, I don't know, shit on the ground or whatever. But, uh, uh, you know, this kind of pushing things down the road allows nobody, it, it makes it so that nobody has skin in the game. And, but they could have forceful opinions without it. We're not going to die tomorrow, but, we'll, uh, but we'll, we will die in 20 years if we don't do X, Y, and Z. And so they're saying this without skin in the game because it's essentially 20 years, who knows who will be alive or what other pandemics or wars or millions of other things that could happen. So how important you think is skin in the game to, to avoiding loser think? Well, the skin in the game is, is terribly important, but you want to make sure that the skin isn't a financial incentive. You know, if you're dealing with financial advisors and they can make money no matter whether you make money or not, and that's, that's not a good situation. And especially if they can make more money by recommending things that are not good for you. It's like, well, I'm your financial advisor. I'm taking 1% of your portfolio no matter what. And I advise you to buy this managed, managed fund where they will also take a percentage and by the way, I didn't mention they're giving me a percentage too. So you got to make sure that money isn't part of it. Yeah, the problem with climate change is that both sides say that um, the reason the other side is wrong is because of money. It's like, oh, it's the oil industry or, oh, it's the socialists who want to rejigger the system and this is just a trick. So everybody's got this suspicion that there's somebody out there who's, who's got something in. Now, you, you reminded me of a classic case of loser think about climate change. You hear people say, all right, you, you liberals, you Democrats, if you really believe in climate change, why is Obama buying a beachfront property? Uh, I guess he has. I don't, I don't know the facts, but let's say people believe it. It doesn't matter if it's true. Uh, if he believes it, why would he be on the beachfront? He's going to lose his beachfront. To which I say, you have a blind spot. You're not rich. <laughs> if you're rich, you can build a beach house and you can lose a beach house and then you build another beach house. It's just not the same thing. So people who are saying, why would you do that? A, he's probably insured against, you know, let's say hurricanes and stuff. B, he can just build another house. And C, he's got plenty of time. I mean, if, if the sea level goes up, it's like, what, inch a year? He's going to kind of see it coming after 20 years, right? Uh, so. so this is a great example. So, so yes, I've seen that argument. And how do you zoom out enough like a lot of this is about self-awareness because it's so easy to kind of stay in the frame of whoever is kind of persuading you, right? So how do you zoom out enough to, um, or build that self-awareness or practice that self-awareness so you can kind of come to a different conclusion like you just did? Some of it is uh, reframing. <clears throat> so I, I look at every situation and I say, okay, what if it's the opposite? You know, how, what, what's another way to describe the same situation that's true but would allow you to look look through a different window. But ultimately, you have to have a little bit of exposure to different fields. In this case, my background in economics just made this obvious to me that rich people don't act like regular people, and they can afford to lose it. Risk management, 
is completely different. They're not losing everything. They might at most lose something, and they've probably mitigated the risk. So if you had a little background in, in uh, economics, you would see that as more obvious. But, but it's interesting, though, that the first step of that might be, okay, assume Obama still believes in climate change and he's buying this house fully aware of what's going to happen. What set of situations or facts have to be in place for this to be true? And you can then work out from those assumptions what you just said, like, okay, he's rich enough. He can afford another place or he's simply buying insurance or blah, blah, blah. He's got 20 years to move. Yeah. Too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, and the other thing that people don't generally understand about climate change is that if the sea level rises, it doesn't rise everywhere, which blows people's minds because you think, uh, how could you add water to the ocean and it wouldn't go up everywhere? And the answer is temperature. So where the water uh, warms up, it expands, and that might not be where you are. So you could actually have higher r rising sea levels in some places and potentially even falling sea level in other places based on, I don't know, tectonic shifts or God knows whatever things I don't understand. I think, I think it, was about, um, it was about 11 years ago I wrote in a book that something to the effect of uh, we don't know for sure what's happening with climate change or, or whether, or, or, or what the causes of it are or whether or not it's man-made. I wrote something that was controversial and the editor refused, at first refused to let me put it in the book saying the classic thing, 97% of scientists have agreed yeah. that climate change uh, is man-made and is happening at a very fast clip. Uh, we only have 10 years left. And uh, my argument back was, you know, 97% of doctors were not washing their hands after dealing with dead bodies and before delivering women until, uh, delivering babies until this Dr. Igor, Igor Semmelweis came on, you know, and changed things. And as you pointed out, when science changes, it's because one person flips a switch and then everybody changes. Yeah, you never know where you are in the process because science is always, you know, changing its opinion until it doesn't. But how do you know when it's done? You know, now, now my take on uh, climate change is that you probably ought to assign different odds to different parts of it. So, what are the odds that scientists correctly know that adding CO two to whatever else is already here is going to cause warming? I would say the odds are pretty good because that's you know chemistry, physics. <laughs> they got that stuff pretty down. But how good are they at knowing that 80 years from now, the GDP will be 10% 10, 10 less than it could have been? Nobody can do that. You know, I've, I've done lots of financial projections for a living. You know, you can't do three years out with any kind of accuracy. But if you look at 80 years with the technological changes, I mean, we, we could all be cyborgs in 80 years, and that's not even a joke because we're, you know, if you have a smartphone, you're halfway to being a cyborg already. So... Absolutely everything is in doubt in 80 years. So the modeling could be true, could be not true, but you can't put the same reliability on it as you would put on, do scientists know the CO2 makes things warmer? That feels like something they would know. Yeah, although I guess then the question is, what do you think about whether it's happening because of normal cyclical changes in the climate you know, they say we had a mini ice age in the 1800s, so now it's a bounce back from that. Or how much is man-made? It seems like it's, like you mentioned 
Uh, there's so many complex variables. It's hard to really measure. Like how do you, in a science, in the scientific method, how do you factor in the effect of a mini ice age in the 1800s? Well, you know, you and I talking about the complexities of climate change is making people wretch as they're listening. It's like, <laughs> my God, how could you, you, you two do that? So I, I would uh, say, I'm, a, I'm a climate, climate change uh, scientist by training. So no. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, I, I would say this, that if it's true, and I'm sure it is, that adding CO2 to this, the current situation is likely to warm it, that's something to worry about. So I, I take that very seriously because you can't warm something forever and expect everything to work out. Like that doesn't make sense. But it also makes sense if you look at the number of people who have died from natural disasters, let's just say weather disasters over the over history. It starts out with just, you know, hundreds of thousands of people could die if there's a tsunami or something. And then as the through the years we get better at predicting and you know building homes that don't blow away in hurricanes and stuff. So the number is like it's approaching zero. I mean it's not zero, but it's it's going in that direction. So the most likely thing that would happen in 80 years is that the number of people who are dying from weather would drop to zero. <laughs> well, it, it's you, you kind of point this out towards the end of this book and I, um, where you talk about uh, how future technologies are changing so fast. We can't, if it's not a problem like the day after tomorrow, there's a good chance you know, we're going to develop these future technologies that help us. We can't even predict that. Like right. you said, there's no reason why uh, weather-related disasters should go to zero, except for the fact that we build better buildings. We, you know, have better techniques for do better warning systems for evacuating people. And there's lots of things that are happening that, and, and, and you say we can't predict the future, but I do think, you know, you have this chapter, the golden age fil filter, which, I think it's so good you could almost make a hedge fund around this because you do predict a few years into the future on a variety of industries. So I'll just I'll just give a, a quick example. Like in 1966, when Gordon Moore said that computer capacity is gonna double every 18 months, that's you could as long as that and he was a scientist and he was experiencing it, so he had skin in the game to to say that. As long as you have some Moore's law like thing happening in each industry, you can make predictions a few years out. Well, you don't even need that. You could just say that almost everything in the technological world improves. And, you know, 80 years is a long, long time. I mean, we're going to have robots doing work and, you know, God knows what. Uh... Right. But I, I, I probably can't say we're going to have the Star Trek transporter in five years, but you make the point, um, look, 3D printing is, you know, seems to be doubling every X number of months or years. So we're going to start 3, 3D printing homes. And in fact, they're already 3D printing buildings in China. So yeah. you, you could take a lot of data like that that's factual and use it to project a little bit into the future. Yeah, the, the example I use is that uh, back in the dawn of personal computers, it would have been hard to guess who was going to be the winners but you could certainly, um, it was fairly obvious early on that there were going to be more computers, not fewer, and that they would get better. Uh, with the examples of climate change, people don't realize how many startups there are working in the nuclear energy field. Startups were designing so-called generation four nuclear power, which by design can't melt down. 
the, the regular designs by design, if something goes wrong with the human end or they lose power, they can have a, a bad event. But the newer, the newer stuff, uh, if the power goes off or everything goes to heck, it just stops running. And it, it actually uses as its fuel, not every design, but some can, existing nuclear waste. And they have a pretty good idea of how to scale it down to affordable and you know make it small and modular. And um, as long as it's, um, let's say, they're using the same parts for a lot of different devices, they can drive the cost down. So Bill Gates is a big investor in TerraPower. It's just one of these startups. And they're getting purchased, trying to find a place to, um, to test their designs. They, here's another factoid that people don't realize. The existing nuclear power plants in this country were designed before computers. Now, some were built during that age, but they were designed before computers. The new stuff is being designed with supercomputers, so they can simulate you know, what the fuel will do in, in each situation. Um, so they still need to test and iterate to make sure that we've, we've got something. So while I can't predict that Bill Gates' company will be the one that has this breakout, although that's always a good bet because it's Bill Gates, you can feel fairly certain that there's some big changes coming because there are enough startups working in this field. Somebody's going to get a design that works. Somebody's going to find a country that lets them test it. And then they just got to start cranking them out. And, and you also mentioned companies that are um, getting good at scrubbing the air for extra CO2. Yeah. And Gates is involved in that as well. And and so then you wonder, okay, it's another another way to avoid loser thing is to kind of back up and say, are there things I don't know about the edge of technology? And yet people don't do that. There's just sort of this gut, like if you're not if you're not for the same thing everybody else is for, then you're a bad person. Right. And that that's the loser thing part. But why if you just say, well, okay, what about these companies? And they say, I don't know anything about them, how do they react? Well, just knowing that there's there are entire industries that are working on scrubbing the CO2 from the air, and they're already working models. There exist machines that right today are scrubbing CO2 out of the air. Now, what's the problem? Well, it's expensive. But remember, if climate change is the problem that people say it is, expense you can find. I mean, you can find the money because it's such a big deal um, that you would put the money there. Now, fast forward 10 years. Are the scrubbing devices that we have now going to be the same as the ones we have 10 years from now? Probably not. The 10 years from now scrubbers might be 100 times more efficient or some multiple. So one of the things I point out is that um, the, the climate change alarmist, if we can say that, I don't, it sounds like I'm taking sides, but the, the people most concerned about climate change say you got to start right now. you got to do everything you can right now. But the economist in me, the technologist in me, who have had a little, maybe a little more exposure to those fields than some people, uh, I look at the example of my solar panels on my house. I, I got solar panels on my house 10 years ago because I'm in California and I needed to look green. But as an economist, I knew it was a terrible idea, even though those panels paid for themselves in, I don't know, four or five years. Most people would say, well, that's a good deal. Paid for themselves in five years, helped, helped the... Uh, the environment. But what I knew is that the cost of solar panels was dropping fast. And if I had simply waited and, you know, paid for my full P, full power for five years, I would have gotten the same solar uh, cells, but I would have paid maybe, I don't know, 20% or something uh, compared to the 100%. 
So if I simply waited five years, I would have so much a better solution that it would be better for the environment in the long run, better for my economics in the long run. I knew that, but because of the social pressure of having solar panels, I put them in that that, uh, installation. And and again, you knew that because with with solar panel efficiency also, there's a Moore's Law equivalent, which is that these, you know, solar panels are getting, you know, doubling in efficiency every or quadrupling efficiency actually every two years. There's some there's some equivalent Moore's law, and I right. think you again. I, that's why I like this chapter so much. It's like you, you, you take every industry that has this exponential thing happening, and you are able to not predict the future in terms of what companies will work, but predict that this industry is going to solve problems we can't even imagine because of the exponential growth. Like you talk about, you know, big data, DNA. Uh, you know, the nuclear powers, uh, 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 just all, all these different issues that you talk about. It's like you could you could be putting together perspectives for a hedge fund here. Yeah, uh, uh, Your next job. <laughs> healthcare is another one I talk about that's interesting because you know you can't predict exactly where any individual company goes. But I worked with some startups in uh, Berkeley, so I got to see some healthcare startups, and they're miniaturizing. Um, a lot of the test equipment, things to test your skin, your your blood, et cetera. So it's getting smaller and smaller and cheaper. Uh, you won't necessarily have to send anything to the lab. You might be able to do it at home. There's stuff you can fix affix to your uh, smartphone. There will be sensors and tests and stuff. So pretty soon you'll be able to give yourself a full diagnosis without leaving the house. And maybe you don't even have health care. Maybe all you have is Google and a smartphone, and you say, well, I guess I better you know, test some things and you you just have everything you need. Now you still need people to put on the splints and do the surgeries and stuff. But I, I think the cost of healthcare could drop a lot for existing processes. We'll still pay more for the new things they, they invent. That's where all the money will be. But uh, for the things we do routinely, I think those costs will drop a lot. But, you know, people have a hard time accepting... And I shouldn't, I shouldn't generalize. I'm just, sometimes you see in these arguments, people have a hard time assuming the exponential increases in these industries that have been historically exponentially increasing, at least for the past 20 years, all these industries you, you've mentioned started out from tiny, tiny slivers of an industry to starting now to become major industries. Why do you, it seems like a part of loser think that people assume things are going to freeze exactly as they are right now. Yeah, the uh, people make what I call straight line proje- projections. They predict the future based on, you know, the the current set of things just projecting into the future. But that happens exactly zero times because the future is all surprises and big step functions and discoveries and wars and shocks and stuff and that's completely unpredictable. Yet, you know, we're rational people we still make these straight line prediction, uh, predictions, and they have some use because they can tell you what to stop doing. You know, but you know, if it predicted that if you keep doing what you're doing, uh, doom will happen, well, that could be useful, but it doesn't mean doom would happen. It just means maybe that's not a good, uh, a good uh, risk reward path. Do you think this is the reason why um, there's so many like dystopian type movies in Hollywood or books or whatever? Yeah, they don't buy into what I call the the Adam's Law of Slow-Moving Disasters, which is if you can see a disaster coming and everybody can see it, 
and you've got lots of time to work on it, let's say years, we're really good at fixing stuff we see coming. You know, we thought we were going to run out of food at one point in history, but we got better at growing food. We thought we'd run out of oil, but now we're fracking and we're, we've got our windmills and our solar panels and stuff. So it's uh, fairly predictable that uh, you know, things are going to go in that direction. Feels like in these, tw- you know, in in these Twitter arguments, you get to see every type of behavior. Seems like uh, what would be fun is if t- Twitter uh, attached the prediction market alongside of Twitter. So like, okay, we reached a point where we have different assumptions. Let's now put a dollar, make a dollar bet, or you know, you can even have play money and then and aim to be, you know, have a higher percentage return with play money. You know, that's sort of what the uh, online prediction markets do, the the gambling markets. So I, I've used Predict It. I think that's yeah, the I use Predict It, um, and I've placed some bets. And part of it is to test my own, you know, omniscience. And um, depending on the the nature of what it is I'm betting on, there's some categories that I seem to be better. But I'm I'm just sort of learning to see if there's a pattern, what I get right and what I get wrong. But I can't tell you how many times. You know, uh, don't ask for an example, but sometimes I'll be, well, this is definitely going to happen, and it would just be a surprise. Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, I predicted that Kamala Harris would be the the nominee about a year ago for the Democrats. Here's what I didn't see coming. She's the worst campaigner of all time. There's never been anybody who's done a worse job than she consistently does. Now, was that predictable? I mean, I just assumed she was a senator— I'd seen her talk in public. She seemed very capable. I thought everybody else seems to be able to campaign okay. But I got the the least capable campaigner of all time, which of course made that prediction unlikely to come true. I still keep I'm still keeping the prediction, by the way. Yeah, because the, the reason for it didn't change. This was just an, a new fact that was introduced that makes it less likely. Well, it's interesting because again, I don't really follow the the news. But I do look at predict it, and I was there. There is one market which says who is the next of the top five polling Democratic candidates. Who is the next to drop out? And she's by far the leader of that market. <laughs> and I was like, what? I this this was totally news to me. It was a surprise. Like, in what way is she a bad campaigner? Well, the last several campaign videos I've seen, she's in a school talking to children or their their teachers or dancing with young people. And so she she uh, she looks like she's running for principal of the school. If you see Trump, he's in uh, a stadium with you know tens of thousands of people. He's got his suit on, he came in the plane, and even before he had, you know, Air Force One, he came in the plane because he was he was pretending to be president before he was. In fact, he did the Saturday Night Live skit where he pretended to be the president before he was one. So Trump consistently gets the look right, he gets the message right, he gets a simple, repetitive, clean. Um, in Brad Parscal, his his campaign and digital manager, probably the best talent we've ever seen in, in that domain. So he's just killing it. <clears throat> and then you see Kamala Harris out there with uh, pushing some of the, the weakest, I, I was trying to remember what she, she had a proposal recently that was so not in the top 20 of what anybody cared about. And I thought, that just doesn't even look like you're trying anymore. Uh, all your optics are wrong. Your body language is wrong. Um, there's just so much that could be fixed. I think her sister's her campaign manager. That might be part of the problem. You know, one candidate I was curious about what you would 
think about them. I don't mean to make this a discussion about the election. We'll we'll be here after this. But uh, Andrew Yang reminds me of, in some ways, of Donald Trump in 2016. Not in terms of policies or personality or anything like that. Just the fact that there's such a different background from the average politician and is using that to kind of, you know, almost use choice ambiguity bias. You have me who's different or all the others. He is one of the most interesting candidates. You're right. He makes everybody curious. And I, I've been trying to think, what is it about him that draws us to him? Now, part it's it's different, but being different isn't enough. There's something also authentic about it. So he has a Trump-like authenticity, which is different from saying that everything he wants to do is a good idea. Because um, I, I don't know if he's even thought through the big policies. I, I don't even follow him closely enough to know. But he, he pushes his UBI, his universal basic income idea, and that got him a lot of attention, but we don't know if he has any depth. We don't know if there's anything else there. And also, I'm wondering if he doesn't, he's using some of the persuasion techniques you talk about, but he doesn't use things like the, like Trump was fine being both positive and negative, like the linguistic kill shot, like even saying now, slow Joe, <laughs> you know, like Yang doesn't do that. Yang does not um, play with our emotions, which is why he's you know lower in the polls. If he played with our emotions more, he would be you know, more of a Trump, more of a Bernie. You know, the, they they go directly to you know something in you that you feel. But when he's talking about, well, someday there will be automation and robots, and maybe we need this concept. I call it the universe. You know, it could be the greatest idea ever. And by the way, I think there's something to it. Like, I don't discount the universal basic income at all under the conditions of robots taking jobs, et cetera. Um, but it just doesn't excite. So it's not going to make me click. So, so you know, going on to an, uh, another topic in the book, you have uh, a, a an example of loser think is when someone asks you to prove a negative. So you're in an argument and, I don't know, let's say it's a relationship. Prove that you're never going to do X, <laughs> Y, or Z again. And you can't, you can't prove a negative. Uh, uh, what's, what's your advice there? Just say you can't prove a negative. There, there's, there's really nothing you can do because obviously you can't prove it. Uh, you just have to point it out. And it's handy that there's a phrase. You can't prove a negative. If that phrase didn't exist, imagine trying to explain why you can't prove a negative to somebody who'd never heard it. Hmm. But since most people have at least heard it, even if they're not buying into it, they'll say, oh, okay, that sounds like a thing. Can't prove a negative. Reminds me, actually, one time I had on uh, Chris Voss, who was the, uh, for a long time, the chief hostage negotiator for the FBI. And if the terrorists would say to him, uh, I need $37 million in cash by in three hours at delivered at this point, he would, he, it, it's not quite... They're not quite asking him to prove a negative, but he would he would say, how can I do that? Tell me how I can do that. So he's kind of outsourcing to them the solution to their question. That's actually a form of, tell, uh, of what we were talking about before when I said, tell me something that you believe is true that I don't. Hmm. And he just did a more elegant form. So explain how I could do that in three hours because I don't know how. Can, can you explain it? Yeah, I guess because what's happening there is you're not on opposite sides of the conversation then. You're, you're the same side, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't think of it that way when you first yeah. wrote about the magic question. No, you're assume, not arguing. Right. You're going on their side and you're looking at the problem together. Right. 
right? As two economists would do just automatically, they would fall into that model. Um, yeah, and I'll bet your hostage negotiator also used pacing, where he would uh, agree emotionally with the person. It's like, yeah, that's it's a bad situation. I know, I know you feel this way. Um, should be maybe something could be done about that, depending on what it is they're claiming or asking for. So he probably does some of that. Did he mention that? Uh, yeah, he would always find some way to relate. Yeah, like, exactly. oh, you had a hard time with your mother, so did I. Yeah. So, did I. <laughs> yeah. so um, well, how have you seen a lot of these examples that you show are in your Twitter arguments? And I'm not done with those yet, but I'm curious how you've seen some of these examples and techniques useful in your relationships. Like, let's say, relationship with girlfriend. <laughs> well, uh, that, that's a tricky question. Uh, I, I can't think of a specific case where I've used the techniques in the book. I have the advantage of having a very smart girlfriend who is very rational. So we end up kind of agreeing on almost everything. We almost never disagree. Uh, Maybe she's using your techniques against you. <laughs> my God, <laughs> you're right. I mean, so so when's there been a case though when you thought you you look at yourself and you're like, you know what? I've just been engaging in immense loser think. Well, um, especially because I wrote the book, I, I've spent so much of my life looking for these flaws and and gaps that um, I've escaped from a lot of bubbles that you know, maybe other people couldn't escape from. One of them, for example, was, how do you become a famous cartoonist when you've never been any kind of a cartoonist? <laughs> you know, if, if I believe that that was my limitation and I believe the, the worst loser-think advice you'll ever get is stay in your lane, you know, stick to what you're good with. Even this morning, somebody said, stick to cartooning. You know, I, I'm on your Why podcast. Why did someone say that? What was the context? I don't know. I made some comment about who knows, whatever was in the headlines. And they just said, ah, that's dumb. Stick to cartooning. It was the most common thing I hear. <laughs> anyway, so you shouldn't stick to cartooning. Uh, you shouldn't stay in your lane. It's the worst advice you'll ever get. Uh, I think I had some other point there. but uh, I, I agree, though. I think people always say focus, you know, and then you'll get really good at whatever you're focusing on. It just does, I very much believe in the talent stack idea like pursue a bunch of different passions and then you'll kind of uncover what the intersection is. Yeah, I, I also say that uh, a project has to pull you. So you can use your own energy to start something, start a, writing a book, start a project, start a startup. But if it doesn't soon start to draw you in and make you think, ah, oh, I, I can't wait to wake up and work on that thing. I can't wait to write this page. can't wait to make this change in my startup. If it's not pulling you, you probably don't have something there. You, you need the energy to come from it after a while. Do you feel every morning excited to draw another Delbert? No, but I do feel excited every day to do my periscopes. And I do feel excited talking about this kind of content because it's newer, you know, it's fresher, it's more interesting. Cartooning, after 30 years, remember, it's every day, <laughs> 30 years. And the, and the characters don't change that much, and their, their life doesn't change that much. So it's still the best job in the world. I mean, I wouldn't trade it for any job, literally. I can't think of any job I would trade that for. Uh, so I can't complain about it. But no, there's, you know, anything will wear you down after a while. But, it, you know, one, one thing is it's not that these things are completely disconnected. Like you mentioned before, 
we were talking about one way to look at pro-life versus pro-choice. And you said that was only possible if someone's very rational. And so I'm going to connect the dots a little bit. So the, the, the premise I was making was that you can believe that it's bad to kill a feces. And you can also believe that it's bad to interfere with the rights of a woman at the same time. And then it's just how you rank those that helps you make the decision as opposed to an argument about the definition of life. Um, and you, you said someone would have to be very rational, but I've seen at least two or three comedians use that exact premise in a joke before making the punchline. And it seems like comedy or humor has to be extra rational because your point, what makes it funny is you're pointing out some real disconnect that exists that nobody's aware of until you point it out. And it feels like even when you bring examples of Dilbert into this book, you're taking some of the, your, your rational thinking about loser thing and bringing it into a humorous situation. Dilbert. Comedy definitely helps you see the world better. Meaning if you're a creator of comedy, because the process of creating comedy is you take a normal situation and then you say, what if it were backwards? What, what if this happened? So you're, you're sort of rotating situations in your mind until, until you laugh, until you, you have a physical response. You're like, Oh, well, I like to use the, the example of a doctor, you know, the normal doctor situation is the doctor is trying to heal you. But what if somebody was a serial killer who found a way to do it legally? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, well, I didn't kill you. I just didn't cure you. It just felt as good. So that would be the humor version. So if you're continually taking every situation and twisting it inside out, taking parts off, putting parts in, how does it compare? What's the analogy? That's just the normal business of writing humor. There's no way that doesn't help you look at the world at least more productively. One, one of the tips in Loser Think is about imagination. So the, the comedian exercises their imagination all the time and probably makes a difference of how they can employ it in the world. But lots of times you'll see somebody say, oh, let me, let me use the Epstein uh, death case. So there are people who say, how can you explain you know, all these coincidences that had to be murder? You know, the camera was off, the guard was asleep. There's no way it had to be murder, and there was some bone in his neck broken. And I, I point out a few things. I say, first of all, everything about Epstein was the exception to the rule. How he made his money, how he got away with it so long, how he could get Clinton on his plane after all of this stuff. You know, nothing he did made any sense in our real world. Why would his death be the one exception that was somehow, oh, that made sense. But the, the lack of imagination part is if you can't imagine that one of the possibilities is that he did, let's say, bribe a guard, he did bribe somebody to turn off the cameras, that that was part of his suicide because he would have had to disable those things to have enough time to kill himself. The other thing people say, well, what about those bones that are broken in his neck? That's highly, highly um, correlated with murder because when you just hang yourself, apparently that rarely happens. But does it happen? Never. <laughs> and could you say that the average person who was trying to kill themselves would do as good a job of killing themselves as Epstein, who apparently, even though his job was evil, was the best evil you've ever seen? I mean, not, nobody did evil like he did evil. So would it be a stretch to imagine he could have figured out the physics to hang himself in the best possible way? I mean, could he have, you know, jumped off the top of the bunk and or he flung himself forward too which they always discount in a lot of this analysis he didn't just drop 
Right. Or, or, or he fell and then he hit himself or he had a heavy object in his hand. I guess they would have known that and it fell out of his hands. So you didn't know that was part of the weight that brought him down. So I'm not saying that any of those things happened. I'm just saying that the more your imagination is active, the more you can say, okay, maybe we don't know what's going on here. Maybe all these coincidences could be explained in two or three different ways. Well, but this, this brings to mind, like I was confused about your stance on Occam's razor. So Occam's razor is that the simplest, easiest solution is probably the correct one. And in what you described just now, the easiest, simple solution is that a guy who committed suicide and none of the dozens of other people who would have had to have been involved with a conspiracy have come forward. It's probably a suicide. But in the book, you're kind of like, don't rely too much on Occam's razor. So when do you, when should, uh, Occam's razor is my favorite razor. So <laughs> I shave with it all the time. So when, when would you uh, use it? You just use it there. So the problem with saying that the simplest explanation is the likely one is that we all think our explanation is a simple one. Hmm. So it's sort of backwards thinking. So my example I use is uh, explain how the universe got here. Creationists said God did it. Simple. Top that. Uh, evolutionary guy, the evolution scientist says small changes over time, random fluctuations, simple. Just one rule, it made everything happen. So everybody thinks they have the, the simple explanation. Uh, the example of the, the Epstein example is not so much the simpler versus unsimple, but rather normal versus abnormal. Hmm. What is normal? Somebody killing themselves in jail. What would be normal about a suicide scene? At least a few things about the scene that make you think, hmm, you wouldn't normally see this in a suicide. Where's the note? Just as an example. So to have the most ordinary explanation is that it was an ordinary suicide, but he's very capable because he's very capable versus somehow a bunch of people conspired to get somebody into the jail, turn off the cameras. That gets complicated fast, but it's not the complication that makes me rule it out. It's that it's unordinary. Whereas we have a perfectly ordinary explanation that at least satisfies me that, yeah, I don't know why that bone broke, but probably there's a reason. So, so, okay. So it's almost like your take on Occam's razor is use Occam's razor in kind of an ordinary, statistically ordinary situation. I would just change the words to, uh, is there an ordinary explanation that fits the facts? If ordinary fits, even if ordinary is also complicated, but it's something you see all the time, the more ordinary it is, if it fits the facts, statistically, that's the one you want to go with. So I'm, I'm going to go into the realm of personal relationships. Let's say you're, you're at home and, um, I don't know, your, your girlfriend goes out to a party and stays out till 8 PM the next day, keeps, keeps texting you. I'm about to come home, but just stays out till 8 PM the next day. And, and all your friends are saying, don't worry. It's, it's nothing. It's nothing. And, but it seems like the ordinary answer there is ah, probably something suspicious is happening. Yeah, you know, I think you'd have to look for other information there. I mean, by itself, that's probably not going to tell you what you want. But yes, if, if your girlfriend or spouse or boyfriend stays out all night, you got some questions. It probably, because again, it's what's ordinary is what's statistically ordinary. Um, so, 
okay, given all of this and given all that you, you know, you, you, it's like you dive into Twitter hoping for arguments ever since 2016, you've been controversial. Like, you know, you, you used to be, I won't, I don't want to say just the Dilbert guy because Dilbert was, is such an impactful, um, you know, work of art and on society and on our culture, but people thought of you that way. Now they think of you as the Dilbert guy and isn't he that guy who's always writing about Trump? I've even said to other people, oh, Scott Adams is coming on my podcast. And they'd be like, he, his, he's gotten so weird since all the elections. Like, does it frustrate you? Like, have you lost friends? Have you lost family because of your different stances? Uh, not family. Family, family is firmly okay. Um, but friends, probably two-thirds. Wow. Maybe all of them. How do you deal with that? Um, cause I've lost friends over stances and it's very painful for me. Yeah. It was easier than I thought it would be <laughs> honestly, because it changes who I thought they were. Hmm. Yeah. You know, if they'd stuck with me, I would think, oh, these are awesome people who can take a difference of opinion. But, uh, Trump is unusually polarizing and people who normally would have no problem just having a normal disagreement, it wouldn't be a relationship ender. It is in this case. Um, so I definitely lost some friends that I cared about, um, but I just adjust. And then, and then I'm assuming the hate online, you, 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 it just, blo you blow it away. Like you don't care. I have a bit of a superpower that I've developed over time for, um, lack of embarrassment and lack of shame and not caring too much what other people's opinions are. I do care because, you know, their opinions inform what I do. But um, through lots of practice of embarrassing myself and humiliating myself and doing the wrong thing in public, it just doesn't bother me like it might have in the past. Like, what do you mean with practice? So I don't, I don't see you like regularly humiliating yourself and it's not like you pee in the streets or anything. <laughs> like I don't, I don't see yourself regularly humiliating yourself in public. Well, you know, I, I probably do less of it now, but for example, the, the first time somebody asked me to give a paid speech, I'd never given one and I showed up, gave the speech and the feedback was eh, not so good, <laughs> not, not so good. So I just sort of embarrassed myself in front of a bunch of people, but I eventually f figured out how to do it well and became one of the top paid speakers in the country. Um, more recently, uh, uh, I guess I can name names here. I did, uh, I, I did a speech for uh, Mark Benioff and Salesforce. And I'd been off the speaking circuit for a, a while. And I didn't have a prepared speech, but it was sort of, a, they had a cancellation or something. So I, I got asked to do it because it was, it was close. So I said, oh, all right, I'll, I'll try it. And I went there and the feedback I got from Benioff himself was just paraphrasing was, you know, not so good. <laughs> now he said it, not in a jerk way. He's a pretty awesome guy. I think he'll be president someday actually. Uh, so I have a very high opinion of Benioff, but it was so useful. And, but you know, it's hard to hear that kind of criticism from somebody who's in a position of, you know, influence and successful, but he was right. And I went back and spent a lot of money to get some experts and some graphics and put together a really strong presentation that was very much bettered by his honest criticism. And you don't see that much honest criticism, really. Uh, I think it was the fact that it was honest that made it so powerful. Mm. Um, and 
I, I just have enough experiences of failing badly, uh, hence the title of the one book you mentioned, How to Fail to Everything and Still Win Big, that it's just sort of routine to me now. I think I, think I have to, because I have a lot of experiences of failing badly and embarrassing myself and humiliating myself, but I still want everything I do, everybody to love. <laughs> Even if I'm being, even if I know I'm taking a stance or being opinionated or. Well, it's okay to want it. Yeah. I mean, I want it too, but uh, I also live in the real world where, if it, <laughs> you know, it, the beauty of uh, reaching a certain age is that you've failed enough times to realize that you can fail at all kinds of stuff and wake up the next day and breakfast still tastes good. Yeah. Like, okay, that didn't kill me. I guess I'm still whole. My friends are still my friends in most cases. <laughs> uh, so yeah, just experience and, and reminding yourself it didn't hurt you in the long run. So in, in the book, you say how with nonfiction books, you kind of have to make sure each nonfiction book is different enough and unique enough that people don't say, oh, I've already read that in his last book. He's just going to repeat what he said in his last book. And this one is very different than Win Bigley. Win Bigley is really about persuasion and you use kind of the 2016 election as a filter to explain these different persuasion techniques. But this is like the flip side of it, where you're dealing with people who are persuaded through some mechanism, and now you're trying to to almost unbrainwash them. Right. Yeah, it's uh, one of the chapters is about determining if you're in a cult. And one of the strange things happening in the world today is that the uh, the people on the left and the people on the right don't want to talk to each other. They're, they're actually separating. And so they're forming accidental cults in which each of them is, is isolated from any information coming from the other. And that is a, sort of a dangerous situation, but of course the Adam's Law of Slow-Moving Disaster says it won't kill us. Yeah. Well, what do you think will happen to, to bring us together? <laughs> another president. <laughs> yeah. you know, eventually we're going to have another president. But, but I do think that um, Trump has enough successes that that could change the argument a little bit. Uh, he has to be out of office before people will say, well, I'll give him some credit. He did that thing right. Um, so they need some distance from him, I think. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, I like also this this chapter. Um, I mean, you have a lot of just interesting stuff. People have to read the book because we're not going to talk about each point. But for instance, you talked about the, the danger of slippery slopes. And that's, you know, the, the concept of a slippery slope that, oh, if you smoke a cigarette, the next thing is you're going to, die of a crack addiction or whatever, um, you know, it's a slippery slope or the, the Truman doctrine of foreign policy was a slippery slope. Oh, if Russia gets into Korea, then they're going to be in California the next day. So, so that's just one concept. You talk about many concepts throughout the book, uh, and how to deal with each one. Um, I was interested in this chapter. Privacy is overrated. I was really fascinated by kind of a, your, your reverse thinking on, on privacy, which, which I very much agree with, but just that, you know, but a lot of people disagree. Like we, I've had people on this podcast on both sides. They're like, Oh my God, all, everything in your house is listening to your conversations to, uh, who cares? And, you know, maybe you can just mention what your, your view on privacy is. Yeah. The most people would instinctively say they want privacy and, um, there are lots of good reasons for that. The worst situation is where you lose your privacy, but other people have theirs because then it's an unfair battle. They can say, 
well, look at all these 10 things you did that are terrible, and then what do you have? Nothing, because they still have their privacy. Best situation, and this is just sort of a hypothetical, speculative thing, I don't expect we'll get here quickly, would be nobody had any privacy. Because the first thing you would find out is you'd say, okay, everybody's a freak. Uh, they're a freak in the bedroom, and now I'm bored with it. Like, I don't care what you do. Yeah. You know, think about uh, the, the gay rights sort of history. The worst situation for the uh, gay folks, you know, a few decades ago was other people had privacy, but somehow they got outed. Then they would be the ones who had no privacy, and that was bad. What they cleverly did, and it's one of the uh, greatest political moves of all time, is they came out of the closet kind of all at the same time, relatively speaking. Mm -hmm. Once everybody was out and they gave up their privacy, that's when all the good stuff happened. So releasing their privacy turned out to be the key to unlocking everything. And now it's, you know, LGBTQ rights and, um, you know, the standing in the world has never been better and improving every day, I would say. Um, if you imagine, let's say, uh, health care. Right now we all have our health care privacy. But suppose we all uh, put our data into the cloud, um, it could even be without our names necessarily. But suppose we knew what everybody did, their lifestyle, what they ate, all that information, and also what their health outcomes were and what their DNA says. You would be able to find, before people had trouble, would say, whoa, 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 you are exactly like this class of people who do these things with this DNA, and it leads to a bad thing. So you can't change your DNA, but don't do those things, because that's, that's going to get you in trouble. So... If everybody gave up their privacy, people would get bored with, oh, yeah, you've got some problems I didn't know about. You know about my five problems that I didn't tell you about. I don't care. I just don't care. So giving up privacy makes people just stop caring about things because we don't really care about other people's details unless they try to hide it from us. <laughs> if, you, if you tell point. them, you lose interest. So, Scott, there's so many interesting things in here in in – Loser think. I mean, this is really kind of almost like a guide to living a rational life. And, you know, uh, some of the, I, I just all your, first off, all your opinions, I'm always like really impressed with how you kind of think about things in, a, in almost a reverse way, in a skeptical way. But then also, again, your ability to define different aspects of behavior, classify them first on this broader umbrella of loser thing, but then you divide that up and then techniques for, for dealing with each thing. This is really a, this, this plus your past two books is really a great guide for a living. At least it has been for me. So, uh, I encourage everybody to, to read this and, and reread it. And thanks for writing it. And thanks for coming on the, on the podcast. Thanks so much. This is actually the best interview I've ever had. You're kidding. Uh, I, I will say that categorically because you, you don't ask, you don't ask any questions I'm expecting. Like everything's a little more interesting than what I'm than I'm, what I uh, I'm accustomed to. Well, I so really thank appreciate you, you that. saying that. Yeah, thank you. Well, thanks again. Hold it right there. I have something for you. I'm giving away copies of my new book, The Side Hustle Bible. I'm not even selling this on Amazon. I only want you guys to get it for free. The average multimillionaire has seven different side sources of income or side hustles. So I put together the Side Hustle Bible. 
It contains 177 proven strategies that I've researched. We've interviewed the entrepreneurs involved. We provide step-by-step guides how you can get started at any of these side hustles. Just go to jamesfreebooks.com. That's jamesfreebooks.com. Claim your free copy of the Side Hustle Bible, www.jamesfreebooks.com. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.